0: Welcome to the Arite Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Matt Thomas, Managing Director and CEO of Collection House. It's wonderful to have you along today for this episode of the Arate podcast and I'm really looking forward to bringing this discussion with Matt Thomas to you. Before I introduce him, let me briefly introduce myself for those people who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy solutions for senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if we can be of any assistance, please reach out to me and I'd love the opportunity to chat and see how we can help. Let me now introduce to you, Matt Thomas. Matt Thomas is the Managing Director and CEO of Collection House Limited, a Brisbane-based ASX-listed financial services organisation. He's been with that organisation for 15 years in a variety of roles, originally starting in an IT management role, moving into CIO, then CEO, then CEO, and most recently in 2013 stepping into the role of Managing Director and CEO. He's a graduate of the AIC company director's course and has a number of other professional qualifications in and around IT and electrical engineering. He's also a member of the CEO Institute, a former member of the Institute of Electronic and Electrical Engineers. And he lives in Brisbane with his family. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Matt Thomas. So, Matt, welcome to the Arite podcast. It's fantastic to have you along today. We're sitting in your office uh, looking out at the skyline of Brisbane. It's a a bit of a miserable day here, uh, but I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. And uh, perhaps to begin with, just to let the listeners
1: know your current range of professional responsibilities, please. Um, Thanks, Richard, and thanks for um, taking the time this morning. Um, So as... um CEO and managing director of Collection House Limited, um, a fairly broad uh, scope of responsibilities. Uh, certainly, never, never a dull moment um, in our business and. Um, I, th- I, I think in being in my sixth year as the CEO, um, my my responsibilities uh, have weighted more to the strategic part of the business rather than the operational part of the business, mm-hmm. um, but uh, certainly enough diversity to keep uh, one very interested and engaged even after six long years of uh, sure. being at the top of the, the company. For so. So
0: those people who aren't familiar with what Collection House is all about, perhaps just give us an idea of the... What the business does and and the size in terms of headcount and revenue and so on.
1: Sure. So um, Collection House, uh, which is in currently in the ASX 300, and was founded in 1992. Um, initially as a private debt collection business, um, has certainly evolved now um, to become something much larger than that. Uh, we, we basically are in the business of managing um, consumer debt okay. in all its shapes and forms, um, whether it's servicing consumer debt portfolios, acquiring portfolios, providing consulting training services in in those areas. Um, we have two law firms as well. So mm-hmm. it's quite a diversified um, financial services group mm-hmm. focusing on consumer debt issues and impaired um, okay. portfolios. So
0: it's- Essentially, you are engaged by an organisation that the debt is owed to, mm-hmm. to collect the debt on their behalf.
1: Yes, and I guess the, the main major branch is either uh, the customer is retaining uh, being retained by that organisation or indeed they are on-selling that account and that customer to us. Okay. Um, so we have over a million of our own customers historically right. uh-huh. uh, through our purchase debt portfolios and, and um, are currently going through the transition of building that consumer-facing business as well as our traditional B2B business. Okay, and how many uh, employees do you have? Um, It's around 900 FTE currently, um, operating in three countries uh, and um, with Turnover's about $140 million Right, currently. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: And you've been with the business for a long time, even prior to uh, becoming the CEO.
1: Mm-hmm. Correct. So 17 years. And I, I, I have zigzagged through uh, operational and technical roles as well as management roles. So, okay. Um, prior to being CEO, my longest tenure was as CIO running the technology business. Right. Um, and um, But prior to that and post that, I've also had operational management roles. So okay. it's been an interesting uh, experience living sure. both sides of the technology and operational uh, line.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's uh, go back to where it all began and uh, have a chat to us about where you were born and what your mum and dad did and your brothers and sisters, if there were some, and Mm -hmm. and your early life, please.
1: Certainly. Uh, And maybe that does sort of um, give uh, some hint as to why diversification is a key theme for me in life and in business. Um, I had a pretty mixed up. I guess, um, uh, childhood in a sense, but a positive one um, in terms of the legacy of it. I was born in the UK in 1971, but only spent a few months there before relocating to North Africa, Okay, Uh, lived in Algeria for uh, eight years on and off. What took your family there? Um, My father, as a quantity, uh, sorry, land surveyor, I should say, was um, contracted to some very large uh, steelworks developments and and large infrastructure works. Um, So it was one of those cases of a multi-year project and the whole family moved. Right. Um, And uh, so my formative years were um, in a pretty... Literally, foreign sure. environment. Um, it was post the you know French Civil War in Algeria. Okay. Um, we were often mistaken as the French people. Right. So it wasn't all roses. And how long were you there for? Uh, eight years in total and okay. two, two, two stints. Right. Um, and then emigrating uh, to Australia in 1981. Okay. So um, uh, where largely I've re- remained since. Right. Um, but, um, so... Certainly history, but uh, I think it's, it has a bearing on sure. your view of the world. Absolutely. And um, that there's more more out there, in a sense. Um, and did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, one brother, a younger brother, uh, four years younger. Okay. Um, and, uh, and he also, I think we both, from that experience, uh, in a sense, never grew roots in a way. And We, right. we love to travel. We've yeah. we both sort of travelled a lot around the okay. world, and uh, he has worked all over the world. And, okay. Um, in various different roles. So um, so I think, think we were somewhat fortunate to have that start sure. in life because it does set, you know, it gives you a perspective that right. you carry with you forever and um, a curiosity and, uh-huh. and also a sense of understanding that things are different okay. around the world and even between cultures. And, sure.
0: Yeah. And so you
1: uh, ended up in Australia. In eighty one, yes. So I, um, my father's English and lives in London, but my mother is Australian, so we moved here. Okay, um, to be closer to my mother's family in eighty one, and um, but then still moved around a lot. Right. So I went to five different schools, and uh, um, uh, we lived in various places once again with my father following work. Okay. Projects and construction right. works, we working for Thies and okay. some of the large c- civil engineering companies. But, but at that time, predominantly within Australia? Yes, within Australia at Right, that point. okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, trying to keep schooling right. contiguous. So. Uh, yeah. And so uh, by the time you finished high school, where were you then? I finished high school, one year of high school, in Tweed Heads, okay. of all places, right. which again was just out, kind of out of the blue. Sure. Um, my father at that time was working on what became Robina. Okay, so the uh, town centre. Putting all the canals down. Oh, right, So he okay. was one of the sort of pioneering surveyors, chief surveyor on that. Right. Um, as well as much of the Pacific Highway mm-hmm. duplication work over the sort of 80s and 90s. So, um, so yeah, found myself in Tweed Heads, but then quick, fairly qu- quickly after um, f- finishing the high school, went to Sydney and took up uh, my studies in Sydney at the University of New South Wales. Right. Um, and why specifically Sydney? Um... I I just felt so academically did quite well at school and simply qualifying in some of the better schools took right. the best opportunity available. Okay, sure. um, I was obviously mobile. Yes, um, Tweed Heads wasn't the um, centre of the universe, right. as I well knew yep. <laughs> from my travels. And, um, yeah, so again, I guess that mobility has always right. been a factor. And so did you live on campus when you were doing... I did, I, right, okay. yeah, for the first couple of years. Okay. I did live on campus. And did um, you have a job, uh,
0: sort of a part-time job while you were studying?
1: Well, the interesting story, Richard, here, is that um, uh, my family's never been well off. Um, and by the second year, I was struggling to meet, I was on a scholarship, but right. I was struggling to meet, uh, make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the second year, um, my mother came to see me in Sydney to see how I was going and um, dragged me to what was, I think, then the CES. Right. Pre Centrelink. Yeah. Uh, and said, Why don't you, here's a job, because I've been telling her there's no job. So she right. said, Here's a job. Um, and that job was uh, working in a debt collection business in okay. Bondi Junction. Right. Um, which I started doing p- part-time in 90, 1990, I think. Um, and that's where I got into this industry. Okay. It's quite fatalistically right. and by coincidence. And so what was uh, the first job you were doing then? Folding mail. Okay. Yeah, putting mail in envelopes. Right. Um, and it involved also, they didn't know from their system how to get all the detail, all the fields, all the information to the letters, so I had to handwrite in okay. numbers and things. Right. And within a month, I'd... Automated that right. I as I was a computer programmer. Sure, um, and very quickly found myself on a promotional okay. cycle. Yep. Um, uh, and in '92, helped co-found All the Stewart. Uh, okay. so I left that business, um, and we set up our own business. Um, right. In in uh, pardon me '93, I should say. And you'd completed your qualifications by then. I hadn't. I oh, put hadn't. it all on hold oh, because I okay. was I, I was introduced to this wonderful thing called money, right? And uh, uh, and was thoroughly enjoying building this business, yeah. And um, and uh, 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 it, it continued to grow from that point, right? On. Okay. And so, um, when you founded your own
0: business, um, did you do it with partners, or what? What did that look like?
1: I was a minor equity partner, so there was a, a, okay. a we had a founder who who basically um, funded the, the establishment of that business, right? Um. Which grew into a reasonably sized um, sure. uh, business specialising in workers' compensation, corporate recoveries. Okay. And then was acquired by Collection House in 1999.
0: Right. So you were an entrepreneur from a very early age then? In a sense. Sure. Yes.
1: And I also was running my own consultancy through some of those years as well okay. on the side. Okay. Um, so yes, uh, heritage in small business and entrepreneurship. Right. Yeah. Um, um, and then uh, over the last yeah, many years, I've found myself um, on the other side of the coin. Um, and uh, now reflecting, I guess, on the yeah the pros and cons. Of entrepreneurs, small business versus... Yeah, corporate. in a sense. I mean, there's, I think uh, large corporates now are realising they have to be more innovative Absolutely. and flexible and, yeah. and, and dealing with digital challenges, mm-hmm. et cetera. And uh, it is more difficult to do mm-hmm. that from a public, particularly a public, but sure. large corporate yep. environment to a, a start-up in a small right. garage. And uh, um, I, I think that it's really interesting. I feel it's somewhat... Have, you know, things are going full circle in a sense. Well, i have certainly be keen to uh, explore a little bit
0: of uh, your thoughts and philosophies around that a bit later. So mm. um, you uh, start Alder Stewart. That business is running uh, for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you ever return to your studies, um, your engineering degree, or that got put away for good?
1: It got put away. I, I wasn't happy with where the engineering itself was going. Right. Because um, I was a scholarship and uh, um, it was the precursor to Optus, Uh, that was funding me, they were pushing me pretty hard down a poles and wires line. Okay. Heavy engineering, power transmission, automation, Um, whereas I wanted to move into robotics and artificial intelligence and quite specialist computer engineering path. So um, I was quite happy to go away from that and and take a different approach Mm -hmm. in life at that time, Mm -hmm. um, idealistically perhaps. Um, But as it turned out, it worked out rather for the better. Mm -hmm. Um, And so
0: within that business... uh, there were opportunities for you to start to explore the technology um, orientation that you had, but using, utilizing it within this structure of a debt collection business.
1: Precisely right. at Alder Stewart. While I was managing the operation, I was also developing every mm-hmm. day, coding okay. the software that I was using right. every day. Okay, um, and being a company that only had six employees, mm-hmm. it, uh, in, innovation was young Tom yelling across the office, if only you could do this. Right. And I'd tap, 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 and an hour or two later, it was live. Um, and we developed a fantastic piece of software, um, and I believe that was one of the key reasons that the founder of Collection House, John Pierce, acquired right. Collection House, okay. to, uh, to get that right. ta- talent, perhaps, but also the thinking, the, the innovation that was inherent in Aldous Stewart. And was the
0: idea at the time prior to being acquired by a Collection House... That you were going to develop these uh, uh, capabilities and then on sell that to other
1: dead collection businesses
0: to utilise, you know, the, your um, software etc. Was that
1: the plan? Um, it was originally the plan, but um, uh, it became exclusive to Alder Stewart. Right. Um, uh, so I licensed it. I licensed the software to Alder Stewart right. out of my consulting business. Yeah. Um, uh which which worked worked well for everybody right um and then uh having some sweat equity in that business when collection house acquired yeah you know i basically uh, was paid out in that regard as well
0: okay and so what was collection house like when you joined them give us an idea of the sort of the size of the business then
1: uh frankly it was a big big family company okay um uh having you know it was the, just a year almost a year before the ipa so right. it was a, essentially still Felt like a family company, yeah. Um, but absolutely buzzing with optimism, and you know, great, as, great aspirations for mm-hmm. the future. A- understandably, it was the heady days of the dot com boom, right. and, sure. uh, and we, you know, we were, were, the, were um, racing to be the first debt collection business to. IPO in Australia okay. and um, I think we were the BRW business of the year and so it was, a, it was an exciting time. Right. And the founder was still in the business as what managing director? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was Mr. John Pierce. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, and I yeah I was essentially focused on the operations of all the Stuart being integrated into Collection House but as well as the technology role I right. played yep. um, and that led to my relocation to Brisbane in 2001 mm-hmm. um, won't forget that because it was September so I remember f- not liking flying around buildings so much at the right. time sure. um, but um, yeah my the intention was that John and I agreed was that I would help uh, bring that innovation to Collection House and de- right. in developing our systems and okay. um, which has been a long-term quest. Sure. Um, and uh, until 2006, I was CIO and really mm-hmm. overseeing that development. Mm-hmm. Um, Collection House, I didn't mention at the beginning, but has always had a quite a significant technology component, mm-hmm. um, invest in research and development. We're a, a, a premier recipient of um, of Aus, Aus, um support um, and has, yeah, developed a lot of proprietary software and right. now analytical models and so forth. So... Um, that's drawn again on my original heritage and um, and certainly given us competitive advantage over the last mm-hmm. few years. Mm.
0: It is unusual to see somebody come from uh, an IT CIO background and end up as a CEO. It's not a typical path. I, I mean, know. Martin Moore, CEO of CS Energy, who's also been on the podcast, is another example. But mm-hmm. it, it, it's quite a... Uh, an unusual uh, precursor to becoming a CEO. Mm. As you were building your career and your responsibilities were growing, what do you think it was about you you and your attributes that enabled you to to make that leap from uh, an IT technical orientated specialist to um, a a broader, well-rounded leader?
1: Yeah, um, well, what comes to mind, because it was something I was just discussing on the weekend, uh, we're going through some um, here at Collection House in People and Culture, some profiling work. Um, so, we're talking about My Briggs. Um, now, I, when I was first tested for My Briggs, I was an ITNJ. Right. And uh, some listeners might yeah. like to know that. But interestingly, when I was tested last time, I was ITFJ. Right. I'm borderline TF, which means thinking, feeling. Yep. I'm kind of in the middle there. I am too. Uh, at school, I excelled in English and maths. Right. Um, so I, I like to think I've probably got a bit of balance when it comes to that right, left, you know, uh, yep. brain. Um, and I think that's helped me from being the number-crunching, analytical guy in the back room right. to also being the leader at the front with the people and having the empathy and yep. uh, and understanding the emotive side of the business. And, right. And... and uh, motivating people. Uh, yeah, I think I've got a balance there that's really served me well to make that transition. Right. It's interesting you bring up
0: my bricks. I had an interesting experience recently, but before I talk <laughs> about that, so what about the idea of I, introvert mm. versus extrovert? Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, being a CEO of an organisation requires you to certainly exhibit extroverted characteristics.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that your natural go-to place or...? Uh, no, not natural go-to place. And I think, you know, there's n- a number of great leaders who have been introverts yeah. uh, o- over history. But, uh, again, it's about uh, understanding your inherent uh, behaviours. It's right. obviously how you modify and compensate sure. for those. Um, so, no, I wouldn't be the... You know, certainly 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been the first person to rush into a room of a 1,000 people and talk for an hour. Um, but uh, I very much enjoy that now. Right. Um,
0: and so was that
1: a conscious...
0: you? You recognised, OK, by... Natural predisposition, I'm an introvert, so I'm going to deliberately develop compensatory behaviours in order to enable me to to fulfil my role.
1: Yeah, and recognising that I'm going to be uncomfortable about this. This is not going to be easy. And I think anticipating that and recognising it, I mean, just identifying, know thyself, Mm -hmm. understanding your weaknesses, makes it so much easier than to compensate for them. Um, uh, Yeah, I had a prior boss who was very... uh, um, uh, egocentric and I learnt through not what not to do right. that that is a, you know, a huge burden for someone to you know not acknowledge their own weaknesses and right. listen and all the things sure. that come with being at yeah, yeah, the centre of the right. universe. I did my Briggs uh, very recently uh, yeah.
0: as a part of a program that I'm doing and I'd always thought that I was an ENTJ mm-hmm. and it turned out that I was massively I. Oh I see. And, uh, and yet uh, and it, it, it was a light bulb moment for me to actually uh, go wow I I, um, I now get why I do some of the things that I do yeah and so even though my Briggs is probably quite an old tool mm-hmm. it's amazing
1: how um, relevant it, it remains don't you think yeah absolutely yeah. and how uncanny and the results can be to people when mm-hmm. presented mm-hmm. Um Uh, Last year I did some study at London Business School and we did uh, the Neo Profiles, which are similar but different, but interestingly exactly the same recommendations and profile conclusions came out of that process. Okay, Uh, And that was organizational psychiatrists doing quite intense interviews Mm -hmm. and and surveys and yet the same things came out. Right, so uh, you come into
0: Collection House, you're in a variety of different roles. (laughs) You're then uh, in the role of CIO for about three or four years, Mm -hmm. and then that role then moved into uh, being the Chief Operating Officer. That's right. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And so um, when you uh, stepped out of CIO into COO, mm-hmm. I imagine that many elements of what you were doing were still part of your mandate, but what um, mm. what became the critical uh, work uh, operational tasks that you needed to immediately learn and take on board?
1: Yeah, okay. That was a great time for me, Richard, because as it turned out, really, um, the catalyst was the change of CEO. So Tony Abling took over the CEO um, role in the later six. Um, No, he was the fourth CEO. So there'd been been quite a lot of effectively turnover of CEOs relatively um, over the uh, first 10 years or so of the business um, since IPO. But Tony came in and um, the thing was, uh, by that stage, 2006 was probably not our greatest year. If you look right. at the market and what happened in 2006, it was a, a turning point for us. Um, but I, I would say I was fun, essentially running the business by proxy in terms of operations. So mm-hmm. from an IT point of view, really a, to- a lot of the operational strategy and how to do things and what we're reporting and what we're measuring was all yep. coming, frankly, from IT. Okay. Um, and the operational management um, almost entirely changed in between 2006, 2007. Um, And Tony recognized this and recognized my prior operational experience Mm -hmm. and that I kind of knew the business Mm -hmm. pretty well by then. Uh, I have done phone collections, you know, I've really been at the front lines of the business. Um, So trusted me, put faith in me to step up to the COA role and kind of get on the other side of the glass ceiling. Okay, yeah. um, And lead from the front, not Mm -hmm. the back. Okay. Um, So the transition was actually quite easy. Mm-hmm. Honestly, um, I was able to use the tools that I'd been pushing into the business um, with authority, right. rather than purely by persuasion. Right. Um, so it, it was um, two thousand and seven was a great year, um, and yes, the GFC hit us, um, but we were ready. We mm-hmm. we had the wind behind us then. Mm-hmm. By then, and um, um, over Tony's time, you know, the business grew substantially. Um, and since he left, it's grown substantially. Right. So, um, yeah. And, and I
0: note around that time you went and did the uh, AICD course, is that right?
1: That was in 13, I think. Oh, 13. Yeah. Oh, sorry,
0: I beg your pardon, you did the uh, Graduate School of Business course. Yes, in 2008. Right, mm. and so was that uh, because you just felt that you needed some formal uh, uh,
1: qu- uh, education experience mm. to utilise in your role? Or? Uh, no. No. Um, I guess is the frank answer. Uh, it was because I felt by then um, we're you know we're in, a, we're in a good place. We're going forward, but mm. I needed some external perspective, right. some validation of yeah, sure. Uh, strategically, are we in the right place? Mm-hmm. Uh, are we looking at the right things? Um, mm-hmm. um, I, I I worry more when things are going right than right. when they're going wrong. Because yeah. when they're going right, you don't know what the next thing that's going to derail
0: you might sure. be, in a sense. And so when you um, went and did that, uh, because I, I find this interesting, I talk to a lot of people about this, did you did it identify for you gaps, or were you amazed, wow, actually, I've pretty much got
1: this nailed? Uh, no, uh, a bit of both. I mean, yeah. it certainly reaffirmed a few things uh, for for me in terms of we're on the right track. Um, I think the main thing I t- walked out of the, um, uh, the general manager program at... Uh, Unsw uh, was um, we were very focused on only a, only a limited number of our stakeholder groups, right. uh, our shareholders, our clients, but we're a f- consumer-facing business, okay. and we weren't really focused on the consumer. Right. Um, and the the whole uh, probably and we we're evolving very quickly by then as a business, mm-hmm. um, but still seen as a debt collector with all the taboo reputational sure. issues. So I came back and uh, at the strategy meeting that year um, put a proposal that we needed to become very Mm customer-centric and here came that ambiguous customer and client thing that ever since has confused people but uh, our clients uh, pay us but our customers or who we're collecting from generally, customers, so they were debtors before that, right, which is not a very respectful term. Sure. The entire business change became completely Mm customer-centric, all of the staff became from collection officers became customer service officers. Right. Everything evolved to this customer-facing culture. From mm-hmm. 2008, that was the key thing out of the the um, that course. in right. realizing that we've got to change. Yeah. And we've got to change the industry, not just yeah. not just ourselves.
0: Well, I can I can mirror that in terms of the recruitment industry that regards the employer as a client. Yes. And candidates, whereas you know the candidate must be an equal client. Um, uh, and I think very few recruiters really acknowledge the fact that they have a responsibility to candidates as clients as well as to employers as mm. clients. So when you think about that change within your business, you know what were some of the specific initiatives that were driven and what kind of uh, quantifiable improvements did you notice as a result?
1: Okay. Um, well, it certainly started... So one thing we did was then we consciously, in our strategic planning... Uh, identified four corporate goals aligning to four stakeholder groups that remain to this very day and that's mm-hmm. staff, customers, clients uh, and shareholders. And we don't treat any of them uh, uh, with any greater weight than any other. Right. We just said they're wow. all important okay. and it's, a, it's a, just an intellectual debate yep. ultimately to in a matter of context and perspective mm-hmm. in terms of which is more important. That's quite contentious because many would say, well, shareholders have always got to be most important, and others would say we, employees have got
0: to be most important.
1: And I do believe that profit follows a good strategy in a sure. sense. It shouldn't be the core goal. It mm-hmm. should be the output the mm-hmm. side, almost the side effect. Um, so we we made that decision, and that then drove our prioritisation of resources across the business and executing strategy okay. in terms of what what are we going to do about customers and how do we change the relationship. Um, it led to much more positive regulatory uh, relationships um, and it became the seed that be- that led to us forming very strong community sector relationships okay. with the likes of the Financial Counselling Association mm-hmm. and Legal Aid and many, mm-hmm. many others. Um, and uh, since that time, we've turned from what was probably just regarded by virtue of taboo, an adversarial type relationship mm-hmm. to truly an alliance. Mm. Um, so now um, – so we said our, uh, we, our call to action or our mission then was to solve financial problems for consumers. Right. And that became the core purpose. Right. From which everything, everything flowed. Yeah. And that became a common purpose with financial counsellors and regulators. We're all out there trying to get the best outcome for the consumer. Right. If we do that, everything else will follow. Sure. All stakeholders will be mm-hmm. better off. Including. The consumer will pay their debt, and everybody wins. Yeah, pretty much because right. we solve the financial problem that has right. been presented to us, and that's our job. That's right. what we're good what we're good at. Now that serves shareholders as well and clients and mm-hmm. staff, because staff feel good then about the role. They're mm-hmm. a customer service officer. They're solving problems. They're not a debt collector. Mm-hmm. that's um, you know ha- harassing people to pay, and that was the old way that I yep. grew up in when I right. first started in the business. We mm-hmm. totally transformed that mm-hmm. in 2008. And so, what led to you then stepping into the role of CEO? Um, well, it was a, a sad day when I realised Tony wasn't kidding about retiring. I um, <laughs> he, he, yeah, um, didn't want to believe he was leaving, but he, he was the longest tenured CEO before myself and mm-hmm. uh, left in July 10. Um, but, um, yeah, he mentored me to be his key succession option internally um, and... Um, uh, I, I must say, I wasn't. It wasn't a goal of mine at mm-hmm. the time. It wasn't something I was working towards. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm quite fatalistic. I take every day as it comes. Yes. Um, but um, in retrospect, um, I was the best option at the time, I, in the board's view. And um, um, again, it was a bit like the transition from CEO to COO. It was. Mm-hmm. It was fairly seamless. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, I think what, if I had any doubts at the time. Um, about my own capability and, and whether it was right for me at that mm-hmm. point in life, um, there was a, a few seconds where those fears were dismissed. When right. John Pierce came up with Dennis Punch as the deputy chair, announced to the staff that mm-hmm. Matt Thomas has been selected, mm-hmm. and there was this thunderous roar, gut roar from the staff of you know cheer. But oh, it was great. just so <laughs> gen- oh. it was so genuine that you know it's one of those memories right. you never forget. Uh-huh. And I thought, uh, look, if the staff, yeah. Uh, oh, that's that happy, then, again, right. I can do this. And, well, you um, can't ask for a better endorsement, I suppose, than that. No, no. that it was, it, it, And for me, it was just a mm. massive confidence booster that, mm. yeah, it's, mm. um, there's one stakeholder group on side. Sure, right. So, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it, it all flowed from there. So. And so
0: what was the mandate when you originally stepped into the role of CEO? Matt, welcome to
1: the CEO role. This is what we need you to achieve. Yeah. Um, This probably goes to that interesting discussion, though, about strategic leadership between Mm -hmm. board and management. Uh So uh, uh, traditionally, our our board has been more one of ratification, endorsement, criticism of strategy, rather than saying, look, this is what we're out to do. Um, um, Given by that time, we'd already established a pretty solid growth trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, Continuing to achieve that Mm -hmm. was um, more than adequate Mm -hmm. for the times. Um, so we were that 2010 so we were moving out of the impacts of the GFC we were buying a lot of debt at the right price by then mm-hmm. um, and um, uh, you know have achieved double-digit growth ever since that time so the strategy was probably seen at its core as the right one mm-hmm. and it was more about prioritizing um, and building and investing in the long-term future of the business so that when things weren't as so great, we were ready to um, backfill those, mm-hmm. those core businesses that, that may, may be challenged in the future, which is kind of where we are today, sure um, so I think it was more steady as she goes, mm-hmm. but also try and bring some of that innovation to the table, and let 's see you know how we can grow this business to the next level. Mm-hmm. And so three years into that role, you then moved into Managing
0: Director and CEO. Mm-hmm. You know, for the people who are listening who aren't really that conversant with what it means to be a Managing Director and CEO versus purely a CEO, what's the difference?
1: Um, yeah, like many things in life, I guess pros and cons. Uh, it was a, a, an advantage very much was having a voice on the board, having a vote, um, and being uh, having skin in the game for board decisions in right. a sense, I'm voting, okay. not just advising. Yeah. So, as a CEO, you report to the board. As a managing director and a CEO,
0: you are a member of the board. Yes, that's right. right. Okay.
1: Um, uh, But um, I I suppose a a CEO that's not an executive director does have a little more independence from the board in a a way. Right. So that was maybe one of the cons of it. Yeah. But uh, it was probably well anticipated by the market at that time that I should be on the board and Mm -hmm. speak for the board. Okay. Um, and it also saved a lot of directors, a lot of trips into the office to sign documents. Sure. So, um, it Yeah, it's, it's, it was a natural progression, and it served as well.
0: Okay. And so, six years as CEO slash MD mm. and CEO. If you look back over that time, what would be an example of a key achievement that you'd hang your hat on, and you'd say, "This is why I'm, you know, why I've uh, done a great job. You know, this is a, a particular thing that I'm particular, I'm very
1: proud of." Okay. I won't talk financials, even though I'm pretty happy with where we've come from, um, uh, but I, I think let's look at another stakeholder group. Mm-hmm. Um, we've really cemented uh, into not only our business, but into the industry, that trust element that just wasn't there before okay. from pursuing that, um, that customer welfare, that social impact approach. Um, so the crowning achievement for me um, that I'd point to um, uh, is probably the establishment of the National Hardship Register, which okay. was publicly launched Publicly as a permanent entity two weeks ago. Okay. Um, but it, it, we that as a concept 2012 um, um, with legal aid I thought gee we can do better than what the just the community sector is doing here. Corporates mm-hmm. can bring a hell of a lot more um, speed and um, um, uh, infrastructure to the problem, mm-hmm. um, uh, which essentially is a, a, a list of providing moratoriums for vulnerable customers and financial hardship across the entire industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so 2013, a lot of work for me lobbying not only the community sector but my own competitors to get on board and respect this and you know, right. um, all agree that if someone identifies a customer eligible for this sort of protection, mm-hmm. that we'll, we will all abide by right. that protection. So this is a
0: particular... Individual, not necessarily a disaster relief situation, but specific individuals in a particular situations. Generally,
1: in, in 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 a permanent state of physical or mental health right. uh, issue, um, is how that's not an eligibility criteria, but it happens to be where most of the customers okay. that approved are coming from. Yeah, which kind of makes it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, it does make sense, but um, didn't make it any easier to actually get everybody around the table to agree across the right. whole industry, yep. but also. Um, you know, there's privacy implications, there's suspicion among mm-hmm. some you know, elements of the community sector. And it, so it was a long, long, long road to uh, get to where we are now that we have a, uh, now it's a fully automated online portal. A mm-hmm. customer can apply and if they meet the criteria, as of only about, about a month ago, they get instant approval. Right. So the trust has got to that point that if those business rules work and we know that everyone's supporting yeah. them, um, you can be immediately told that all your debts are getting waived. Okay. Um, so, it's so that's different to a bankruptcy. Different to situation. bankruptcy, it doesn't have the uh, it doesn't have the imp- the uh, stigma.
0: Okay. But also
1: the um, the legal implications of right. bankruptcy. It's reversible to be on the NHR. Uh, if. And it's never happened, but if it did happen that you got an inheritance or, or circumstances did mm-hmm, change, mm-hmm. Um, you might choose to, well, I'm going to come off the register, pay my debts, okay. clear my credit just right. because I have a, a, it's an ethical decision. I'm capable of doing yeah. that. Bankruptcy right. you, right. you can discharge, but it's a much more onerous process right. and a costly process. This is free.
0: Right. So it's interesting, you know, I ask you uh, to think about a particular thing from six years as CEO and and that's the one that most immediately springs to mind for you. Yeah. Why? Why that? You know. Why? Why is that such a significant uh, uh, part of your legacy as a CEO?
1: Um, well, I think it's, uh, it probably goes to my values. Um, okay. While I, um, uh, and while, you know, while I could have said since 2010 we've you know doubled our profits. And sure. That's all a bit boring for me. Right. Um, that's a sort of yeah tick that box. But yeah. what have you really done? That's a mm-hmm. lasting legacy for the business. Mm-hmm. Um, profit comes and goes. But um, so if we go to values, and um, uh, I I'm, hope I'm not preempting another question, but uh, if I can talk about this, sure. Um, I think what I've really enjoyed in terms of being an introvert in leadership mm-hmm. is that uh, if you have a very clear purpose number one, mm-hmm. um, that aligns to your values and the people you work with understand that purpose mm-hmm. and endorse those values, um, you are more than halfway there to succeed as mm-hmm. a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've certainly uh, and I think I, I think too many of us don't understand what our personal values are. Mm-hmm. We might know our corporate goals and we come up and we cheat, you know, hammer away at those but if there is an alignment with what's really important to one's self, mm-hmm. um, you got a major disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting
0: and so when you have your direct leadership reports, hmm. um, how explicitly are you, for want of a better term, investigating to, to support them in ensuring that their personal values and purpose are in alignment with the business? Is it is it an openly discussed, you know, um, part of your
1: relationship? It is um, and, you know, we've got, we've got to the point of when we we do, through staff pulse surveys, check value alignment, we don't tell them what the values are. We yeah. ask them what values they live. Right. And we make sure that the business is orientating mm-hmm. around those values, which mm-hmm. is kind of a bit of the opposite to sure. the CEO saying, our value is um, performance. Yeah. And everyone, you need to get on board. Yeah. Uh, that's tough, right? Mm. You can't really change people's personal values, mm-hmm. so you have to harness what they really are, mm-hmm. um, and attract the right people that have the values. Is mm-hmm. the, the other approach so cultural fit is key for us, and mm-hmm. um, when we recruit, particularly executives, you know, m- huge weighting is on the cultural fit. Is mm-hmm. the chemistry right with the business and the people? Um, uh, because if the yeah the value alignment's there, then we're again mm-hmm. we're on the right track.
0: And would you say that you get it right most of the time?
1: Yeah. Most, okay. of yep. um, most of the time, yeah. Most of the time, some people sell themselves very well and right. you know, c- perhaps, but um, largely, um, it's yeah. Usually, you can mm-hmm. you can you can sense it. It's sure. almost intuitive,
0: I suppose. Okay. Six years, you've achieved some great outcomes in terms of the performance of the Collection House, which we've just spoken about. When you look back over that time in hindsight, you know, being 2020, are there particular things that, in
1: retrospect, you would have done differently? Um, it's. I, I have been thinking about this a little lately. I, short answer is no. Um, th- you now there's probably two ways of, that might sound a little um, grandiose, but uh, the fact is, there's some things if you could turn the clock back would do differently. Mm-hmm. But in terms of if you go back in that context at that time with the information we had, mm-hmm. would have made a different decision. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's the more relevant question. Sure. Is there anything that where you think you absolutely just made the wrong call? Mm-hmm. Um, Nothing material comes to mind, I really have looked back. Mm -hmm. That's why, as I say, there's, yeah, if you could wind back, you know, mm-hmm. go back in the time machine, probably would change some things, um, wouldn't we all? Mm. We've got to pick different lot of numbers, right? Oh, But, sure. but that's different to you know, regretting yeah. making a decision in okay. the past. No regrets. Mm.
0: And uh, you've been with the same organisation essentially for 20-plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no doubt during that time you've had opportunities to go and do other things. Yeah. In uh, looking at your career and looking at the balance between – uh, single focus, one organisation versus uh, moving for opportunity. Um, what, what's your thoughts? Do you uh, do you have a? If you're looking at somebody's CV and they're showing that they've moved regularly versus somebody that's shown a lot of longevity on their mm-hmm. CV, do you have a preference?
1: Yeah, I, uh, it's a changing preference. Um, you know, we're we're investing heavily now in digital, uh, and I think that's an area where. We've put a lot of time as an executive into understanding the mindset, mm-hmm. because a lot of it seems quite counterintuitive to traditionalists in terms of how one succeeds in the digital world. Um, and to point in case, um, it's the it's actually the if you're trying to bring someone into you know, self disrupt or have mm-hmm. have a true digital mindset, um, they're probably someone that you're going to tick off, you know, cross off the list before you even get to interview, right? Because um, they they're different, mm-hmm. and they just don't tick the normal boxes, mm-hmm. we're very conscious of that, okay, so it's almost that person that yeah, you never would have employed that you need actually need now to get us to think differently to change that mindset um, that's a you know that's a challenge and it's scary, but it's it's something also once you start to get it mm. um, it's very powerful and mm-hmm. I think that's why you know some businesses will struggle um, in facing digital challenges and others will massively uh, mm-hmm. leverage the opportunity. Mm.
0: I know that you're particularly passionate about uh, the technology and the implications of artificial intelligence and uh, disruption. When you look at the business and the sector in general what do you see as some of the emerging trends that you're quite excited about?
1: Yeah um, I, I think uh, I, it's there's, there's some interesting evolutions going on. I mean there's a, um, right now um I suppose big data has reached, reached this point of some maturity where information is readily accessible at the right time. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I, I'm sensing when moving to a focus on the little stuff and what people are calling small data, yeah. um, uh, leveraging external data and um, intangible information mm-hmm. in, and, and people aspects and things that are very, very hard to measure, unstructured yeah. data. Um, and I think that's where <coughs> that's where the automation and the uh, applied intelligence or artificial intelligence is coming into its fore. Um, to make true human-like decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, In our industry, I mean, there's so many levels to this, which is part of the excitement. uh, It's a kid in a candy store for me in terms of seeing where the the opportunities are. Um, In the call centre area, so our business is 100% call centre-based. We're not knocking on doors. We're just simply speaking to people. Um, But there are further opportunities for automation where customers want to ring 24 hours a day and are quite happy not to speak to a person, Mm -hmm. quite happy to speak to a computer. Mm -hmm. Um, And the leaps I think we'll see there very soon, much sooner than people think, um, are quite extraordinary. What Um, would be an example of
0: a a part of that technology that you think is going to really break new ground? uh,
1: So in terms of the automation of, say, call centre interactions... um, uh, where the systems are not only understanding the the meaning and context of what's being, the conversation, mm-hmm. but also preempting um, the disposition, the emotional state, the truthfulness, many other characteristics of the caller mm-hmm. to know how to handle the inquiry, mm-hmm. which is quite amazing. Based on some kind of voice recognition, voice software. recognition and voice analysis, right. and other external data and um, and pattern recognition, and um, um, I mean, it's it's scary on one hand, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, if applied well and ethically. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it has great, imp- great um, benefits too. Sure. You know, the, the computer won't lie, and it'll deal efficiently with the issue and be empathetic. And yeah. um, that goes to the core of what I read about in the um, '80s, right? In terms of the you know future of neural networks and um, natural language processing systems. So mm-hmm. it's quite nostalgic but exciting to be here. You know, 40 years on and or 30 years on, seeing it actually becoming a reality. Mm-hmm. And I know from my own experience uh, recently, having spoken to
0: many CEOs, uh, particularly around this topic, uh, because of some other work that I'm doing, this is becoming uh, mainstream in terms of large corporates really wanting to get on board and, and be at the forefront of this technology rather mm. than lagging behind. Uh, it very much uh, is uh, a big part of uh, strategic business conversations now,
1: isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What about in terms of your own professional development? I mean, you started your degree early on. You went back uh, and did a general management program and uh, subsequently AICD. What Mm -hmm. what else have you done in terms of ensuring that you're building your professional leadership capability? Have you had a coach or have you uh, actively
1: sought out mentors? What are the kind of structures you've put around yourself in that regard? Um, More group-based for me. So I I very much enjoy, a little plug here for the CEO Institute, I very much enjoy that cohort, um, being in a confidential space with those Mm -hmm. peers and um, being able to ask questions either as a group or Mm -hmm. Um, one-on-one and and other peer groups, informal ones as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, yeah, uh, I've never had a single coach um, um, perhaps because uh, I've never found one person that meets all of my rather eclectic needs. Right. <laughs> so by leveraging other you know groups, sure. um, it's more spontaneous, yep. cheaper, faster. Yeah, <laughs> all the things that we try and do. In A lot business. of my
0: guests have either been or are currently participating in the CEO Institute, and uh, Ray Weeks, the chairman of the CEO Institute, has been on the podcast. Oh uh, uh, yes,
1: yes. Uh, uh, so I'm quite familiar with that. He's my syndicate leader. So um, right, yes. And uh, so
0: when you look towards the future now, I mean. Uh, you're still relatively quite a young guy. You've been in the CEO role now for six years. You know, what what would you like to see your future career path unfold as?
1: Um, I I do. Um, and, and picking up on the the, uh, the uh, discussion we just had about uh, automation and, mm-hmm. and um, the change coming, uh, I, I do uh, sometimes regret the um, the the overhead of being within a public company structure okay. and trying to adapt quickly and um, in digital. Um, ROI is very hard to prove in the mm-hmm. in the world of you know fail fast, fail often, and yeah. Um, uh, so um, so it, I may well find myself out of the large corporate environment for mm-hmm. a while um, okay. to go back to my roots in, yep. in the entrepreneurial sphere because um, in some ways the time seems right, okay. given the opportunities that sure. are just swirling around and yeah. Uh, um, um, but also with my industry links and uh, uh, um, relationships I've built, uh, I think there's also opportunities for me to continue playing an industry role mm-hmm. uh, as more of an independent player. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was for a few months the chair of our industry association, mm-hmm. but um, recruited an independent chair because it's the right thing to do to have an independent chair in the committee. Um, but it's, uh, that's a so- certainly a, sort of a role that I could see later on uh, okay. would be quite appealing mm-hmm. to continue my work in uh, trying to transform the industry away from its you know roots as a uh, purely debt collection business right uh, to an industry that's um, very customer focused right. and, and um, in the business of accounts outsourcing management
0: but you see yourself largely remaining within this industry space at least for the foreseeable future or on the periphery
1: I right. think that think, you know having built a couple of decades of contacts and experience yeah. um, a complete uh, a complete uh, extraction from the industry wouldn't makes sense mm-hmm. um as i say I've, I've built a built a repertoire that i should leverage um sure. albeit it might be on the fringes and yeah. moving in some exciting new areas right okay yeah.
0: great mm. we've talked a lot about work today and uh your career what about outside of work what are the kind of things you enjoy to do to keep you fresh and uh,
1: uh and vital yeah i think between my, it's it's a bit sad between my role and my five and seven year old children um So the last five years have been busy on both fronts. Um, Time, been fairly time poor. Sure. um, Something I hope to change in the future. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, I do still, and certainly before I had children, enjoyed um, hiking and and getting out into the the wild world. Um, And I am making steps to ensure that I'm prioritising my time and getting back into that um, at the moment. So um, I've got to... A big hike coming up in New Zealand later in the year in the wilderness. Right. Are you doing um, it with some friends, or? Yeah, I'm doing it with a bunch of retired executives okay. actually. Right. Um, telling war stories, <laughs> um, but that'll be a 75 kilometre walk through the wilderness in the South Island. Right. Um, and I do like those things to sure. just put myself in a very different environment to reflect. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, yeah, it's uh, the most left field ideas come when sometimes you're out of the whirlwind of day to day. So. Um, yeah, I do enjoy that. Um, I have plans to do a lot more travel internationally, again, going back to my uh, curiosity as a child. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I do travel a lot, particularly with a, a father in the in, in, living in London. It gives mm-hmm. me a good excuse to travel around the world every now and again. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those things, I just want to make sure that I don't uh, kick it down the road again and uh, yep. find that uh, I'm too old to enjoy those things. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to... Uh finish up this discussion because mm-hmm. I know you've got plenty of things to get on with. The uh, main reason for this podcast is to really provide uh, for those people who are aspiring C-suite executives or non-executive directors the opportunity to listen to those who have walked the path before them, mm-hmm. uh, learn some lessons and perhaps uh, you know get some insights. If you were advising people in terms of managing their own careers in order to realise their full potential, what would be some of the critical things that you'd want to share with them in terms of your f- philosophies around that?
1: Yeah, okay, well, maybe just two quick things. I mean, firstly, um, leadership's not for everyone and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I think too often young people sort of have this go for the prestige factor before yeah. everything else and that can be quite tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, for least of which for the promoted technician type phenomenon, but uh, you know I've seen some very talented people put themselves in the wrong role and mm-hmm. lose all their confidence mm-hmm. and, um, so I think firstly yeah is it for you um, and that probably goes to the second point which is you know my um, I, I don't I certainly don't attest to be any leadership guru, but as I said before, if you actually identify a purpose that you truly believe in uh, and then you can align values and communicate that honestly um, yeah, you just build a momentum of trust and faith mm-hmm. uh, and commitment and loyalty from your team around you. Um, I guess it's that one-mindedness that Napoleon Hill talked about. It's it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's if you haven't got that, I think yeah, you're you're going to struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that even goes to yeah why as an introvert I'm happy to get up and talk to an investment conference about the business it's because I believe in it Mm -hmm. I I can't get up and talk about something I don't believe in sure that's where I become the introvert yeah blubbering away right if I believe in it it comes from the heart Mm -hmm. um yeah, and I think it's convincing, you sound confident, and I think that's mm-hmm. key. So be yourself. You've mm-hmm. got to be yourself mm-hmm. as much as you can and not, not get that corporate mask fused on that you can never become yourself again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think great words of advice to finish your conversation on.
0: Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time and have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Thanks again for joining me today on the Arrow podcast, and I trust you enjoyed that conversation with Matt Thomas. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes, and in the meantime, have a fantastic day.